to Dr. Brian Arnold right now. Well, it is a great privilege to be with you tonight. I can think of no issue more pressing in America right now than the, the question of morality and what has happened to morality in the last century, leading us up to this head-scratching moment. And joining us tonight are two of the giants of our day who are discussing this issue. The first is Dr. Wayne Grudem, who is Distinguished Research Professor at Phoenix Seminary, where he's taught now since 2001. He was educated at Harvard, at Westminster, and at Cambridge, and many of you know him through the books that he's written. His uh, Systematic Theology, which has sold about 750,000 copies, which is due for a second edition this year. He wrote a book on politics according to the Bible, and most recently he wrote a book on Christian ethics. And R. Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary, my alma mater, said this, it will stand as one of the most important and definitive works of this generation. And good news for you tonight, we have them for sale. So Wayne was sure to save $60 if you buy it outright, and it's $25 at the table at the back. So I hope you'll pick up your copy before you leave today. I've gotten to know Wayne personally over the last five years, and he is one of the most uh, Christian gentlemen I've ever met in my life. He's a man of fierce conviction who matches that with Christ-like character. And it's been a privilege of mine to work alongside him, to see his godliness, and to know his scholarship. Please welcome Dr. Wayne Grudem. Also joining us this evening is Dennis Prager. He is known for his relentless pursuit of traditional values, Judeo-Christian values. The LA Times said that it's his life mission to get people to see what is right and what is wrong. So what a great person to have tonight as we're thinking about the question of morality, who can really speak into this with his experience. He's also a New York Times bestseller, but you know him probably most from his PragerU videos which have just exploded in popularity. I heard him say earlier today that it is seven million views per day. <laughs> and then now over 3.4 billion views of all of those videos. If you go to his website and watch the counter, it's amazing to watch how fast those videos are being devoured. He's also the host of his daily podcast show, The Dennis Prager Show. Ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Prager. Hi. Well, gentlemen, I thought we could start uh, tonight and talk through three, three kind of major things. The first being, how did we get to where we are today? What do you see, especially in the last century, that's led us to this moment? It could be major uh, political movements, cultural moments. Then we'll talk about some of the issues of today and, and where we're at with those. And then finally, at the end tonight, I want you to project into the future. Where do you see all of this going in the next maybe 10, 20, 50, 100 years? Uh, so Dennis, let's start off with you. How in the world did we get to 2020 and the chaos of our moment? 
I am not surprised at uh, what is happening, and I, I will answer you very directly. I have said often, I've been broadcasting for 35 years, and I have said often, some of you I'm sure have heard me say it, that there is one constant theme in my broadcasting of all these uh, decades, and that is the consequences of secularism. People think that when God dies, and I mean that obviously in the sense of faith in God dies, belief in God dies, that nothing really happens. There are no consequences, as it were, to the secularization of society. But uh, you are now seeing that. When I, uh, I, I realized this at graduate school. I grew up and went to school in New York. I was at Columbia University at the graduate work. And I knew, this was 1971, 72, 70, 71, 72. And I was a kid, but I, I knew I was being taught nonsense. For example, I was taught then there's no difference between men and women. This is not new. This is 1970, and it was taught before 1970. So, and I was taught because I was at the School of International Affairs. I, I, I was not a philosophy or theology major. And uh, I was at the Russian Institute. I studied under Brzezinski, who became Carter's security advisor. And uh, I was taught that there was no difference between the US and the Soviet Union. They were both equally responsible for the Cold War. So I was taught nonsense, and then I was going crazy because I was very alone. I was not lonely, I had friends, but I was alone in Columbia. And I, I wrote this, you could, you could see it on the internet. Many years ago I wrote a column, How I Found God in Columbia. So I just was going crazy. Why are so many bright people teaching me nonsense? And then the only epiphany of my life, I've never had a theophany, God has never appeared to me. God, that's why I'm such a fan of the Bible, because while God doesn't appear to me, God speaks to me. So that's, that's why I'm a big fan of it. So uh, I, all of a sudden, this is how it happened. I, I had attended religious Jewish school called Yeshiva until I was 18. Half the day is in Hebrew uh, religious studies, half the day is in English secular studies. So very, very uh, good grounding. In, in biblical Hebrew and, and literature. Anyway, all of a sudden, something I had not said since first grade came into my brain. In Hebrew, because that's the way we said it, wisdom begins with fear of God. And that changed my life. That's why I call it an epiphany. The reason there's no wisdom at Columbia is that there's no God at Columbia. And that shaped my life, that moment, when I realized that the secular world produces knowledge, but no wisdom. There is no wisdom in the secular world. It's astonishing. They are brilliant morons. <laughs> they are. And, and I, the, the New York Times is a, is a perfect embodiment. So is any, any university. It's a perfect embodiment of well-educated fools. 
And that uh, said it to me. I have done shows. I have a great advantage in because I'm writing a, a Bible commentary called the, the Rational Bible, and I have a great advantage over others who've written biblical commentaries. I have talked to millions of people, thousands directly, and millions, of course, indirectly. I, they don't talk back to me, although they do in email. But anyway, I have asked a question once. If you don't get your, because I have secular listeners, obviously, if you don't get your uh, wisdom from the Bible, where do you get it from? I'm just curious. I don't want to argue with you. I just want to know, where do you get it from? I admit it, I get it from the Bible. Where do you get it from? And do you know what the average answer was? My life experience. So the first and most obvious thing is, then why are you giving the vote to 18-year-olds? who have no life experience. That's pretty stupid. The people who least believe in the Bible want to give it to the lowest age group the vote, even though they acknowledge they have the least wisdom. But the reason that they do that is because they lack wisdom. So the, it, it, it's, it's, it, so I mentioned this earlier. This past week, New York Times had a, had a column, and the first sentence is, Men menstruate. That was the first sentence. If you do not believe, if you cannot say men menstruate and give birth, you are a hater. You understand that? You are a hater. This is the world that secularism has created. So if you want to know what my belief is, the ultimate root is where there is no God, there is no wisdom. And everything else crumbles. Dostoevsky, where there is no God, all is permitted. And you can even then take down Washington's and Lincoln's statues. And if you steal, it is called protest, not stealing. Wayne, how did we get here? I agree so much of Dennis's statement. Um, I think when I was growing up as a child in Wisconsin, there was an assumption that the Bible is God's word. It has authority in our lives. That's no longer people's assumption. And when we don't have the Bible as an authority telling us how to live, then people turn to life experience. And we have, uh, we have a son and daughter-in-law and two grandchildren who live half a block from where the protests marched by in Minneapolis. Uh, the parade down 38th Street. And uh, we watched, stayed up, watched the television because we were concerned for them and their safety. Um, they were all right, I'm thankful. But watching the arson and the uh, looting and the destruction of property, even burning a police station, um, it ties in with what Dennis said. Romans 3, talking about the sinfulness of human beings. Quoting the Old Testament Psalms. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. It ends, Romans 3, 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and, and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the key. If people don't fear that they are accountable to God for their actions, 
they'll engage in all sorts of violent behavior. And as I watched your uh, movie, No Safe Spaces, and some of the scenes of violent protests are just amazing. They're, they're irrational evil. Uh, but it comes as a result of casting off the sense of authority of God's word. What's the solution? It has come historically through Christian pastors, many times it has anyway, the Great Awakening and other revivals in history. Christian pastors preaching the moral standards of the Bible and telling people they need to repent because God will hold them accountable. So um, the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, he comes to Athens, he is invited to speak to the philosophers on the Areopagus, and he says to these philosophers who have no background in Torah or Hebrew Bible, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by men whom he has appointed, and of this he has given testimony by raising him from the dead. Calls all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. Paul is saying to these pagan Greek philosophers who have no background in Jewish thought or religion that we know of, you're going to be held accountable to God for your life. And he called on them to repent. Now, um, I had an interesting experience a number of years ago when we lived in Illinois. Our congressman, John Porter at the time, was a kind of a liberal Republican, fit in the suburban suburbs of Chicago. He had an open forum, and so I went and listened to his talk. He took some questions from the audience, and then afterward, he was out in the hallway and there was a line of people talking to him one by one. So I thought, why not? I'll get in line. I came to the front of the line and I said, Congressman Porter, I knew I had one shot. Congressman Porter, when you stand before God at the final judgment, what would you say to him about how you voted on abortion laws? <laughs> Well, it was interesting. He, he was silent for a minute, and then he said, well, I voted for the Hyde Amendment. And he, he, be <laughs> he began to tell me uh, some of the things he had done to support pro-life causes, but they weren't very many. <laughs> and he said, why don't you come and why don't you write me a letter? So I wrote him a letter, he wrote back. Then I got a call from his assistant. Congressman Porter would like to talk to you when he's back in Deerfield in his office. Give me 45 minutes. We talked about the Bible and its teachings on the unborn child and the person with the unborn child. And I brought him, because he been a legislator in the state legislature in Illinois, which is Lincoln territory. I brought him a copy of Lincoln's second inaugural address. I said, look, look at this. Doesn't it say, um, if we shall suppose that this horrible war, this is 1865, the war is not yet over, Lincoln doesn't know how long it will go on, and he doesn't know that he's going to be shot and assassinated 42 days later. He said, if we shall think that, I don't remember the exact wording, that um, the judgment of God is coming on our nation because of the sin of slavery, that's the background to it, and it goes on, 
because the war had gone on longer than anybody expected, more destructive and more loss of life. If we suppose that the war will continue until every, until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 260 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn by the lash shall be repaid with another drawn by the sword, still must it be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So, I said to Congressman Porter, it looks like God is, it looks like Abraham Lincoln is saying God is bringing the civil war as a judgment and a punishment for slavery. He said, yes, I think it does look like that. So, um, might it be possible that God is going to bring judgment on our nation because of abortion? Well, he wanted to think about it some more, and we ended the conversation, but 45 minutes with him by himself and just a staff member taking notes. Just out of that one question, I just assumed that he would think he's going to be held responsible before God at final judgment. And I think even the secular people who deny this is an intellectual exercise have a sense in their hearts that there is a God and they're going to be held accountable. Yeah. <clears throat> Not everybody, perhaps. I had a philosophy professor in college, chairman of the philosophy department. And I said, I think everyone has an inner sense of God. And he said, I don't. But I think he did, but it would come out probably at some other time, a time of crisis. So, anyway, that's a long answer. Straying from the sense of the Bible as not just human writings, which liberal, Protestant liberals, Catholic liberals think, not just human writings, but writings from God that have hold an authority over us to tell us what God expects of us as people. Lack of wisdom, lack of fear of God yeah. is what you're identifying. Dennis, you said something before that I want to kind of return to the secularism piece, and that surrounds our institutions. So when we think about institutions of family, church or synagogue, uh, universities, which of these needs the most help? If, if you could wave a magical wand and say, if we could fix this institution, it would really help the issue of morality in the 21st century, what would you say? It's a sort of Sophie's choice. <laughs> I, I, uh, I want them all to thrive. If you uh, say today, and I do, I say frequently, that the greatest problem confronting uh, most of the, the black community is not white racism, uh, but a lack of fathers, everybody in this room knows that's true. And uh, I believe the vast majority of blacks know it's true. Liberals deny it because it uh, their their deepest war uh, is with I really do believe uh, their deepest war is with the uh, the religious community specifically Christians because that's by far the, the the largest community of religious people in America. So ultimately, if you told me on those grounds, I, 
I would have to say the family. But uh, my column this past week is about my sadness and disappointment with regard to synagogues and uh, churches, priests, ministers, and rabbis. At the very least, if your clergyman cannot make a public pronouncement that God wants us to be colorblind, I believe your clergyman is worthless. And I'm saying it as a provocative and direct a matter as I can. If you, if that is no longer tenable in a church or synagogue, then that church or synagogue is useless. It's worse than useless because it it has the it has a it masquerades as religious. God has no race, and we are created in God's image. Therefore, race is irrelevant, completely and totally irrelevant. That is the, one of the most powerful, important messages of those of us who believe in the Bible. If we can't say that now because the New York Times doesn't say it, then, as I wrote, there is no fear of God, as, as you were talking about, and I write in my column, this fear of the New York Times. Fear of the left is greater among more, I believe, more rabbis, priests, and ministers fear the left than fear God. And uh, this is proof. This is this is the, this is the litmus test. Is colorblind? Colorblind has been declared as a concept as racist by the New York Times, the University of California, and everyone else who has spoken about that phrase. The Washington Post. It is unanimous on the left. Colorblind is racist. We believe colorblind is beautiful. There is no meeting ground between the religious and the left. So when you have religious people who agree with the left, they are agreeing with those who would destroy what we believe. And so that's why I said it was a Sophie's choice. As much as I want the family strengthened, even with a mother and father, you can learn nonsense. So I, I don't know. Would I rather a, a kid not have a dad in his life, but have a serious pastor, priest, or rabbi? Maybe. That's why I, I have to flip a coin. That's how important the, uh, the place of worship should be uh, as, a, a, as the conduit of what God wants us to believe. And without it, uh, you, you now get the notion that colorblind is racist. There's a challenge that's facing pastors, priests, and rabbis right now. And that is the distinction between preaching about moral issues that are clear from the Bible and preaching about political preferences. And I, uh, I teach seminary students, I teach pastors. Brian, uh, Brian's my boss. Oh, he's only 36 years old, but I don't want to know what he Watch yourself. I just realized I'm double your age. <laughs> now let's go back to that wisdom comes from life experience. <laughs> I 
I'm confused. Last retreat. On not teaching not, uh, politics. Yeah, so I'm thinking of, I've written some things on politics over the last few years. Um, I'm thinking of writing something on pastor, you can preach on these issues. Abortion, certainly. Sexual orientation, gender identity, certainly. What about the biblical principle of obedience to government? Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So, what is the authority of government that I have to be subject to? The, the governor uh, of Arizona, the legislature, the laws of Arizona, and the laws of the United States. But our system of government is set up such that there's a higher authority than the Congress or the Supreme Court or the presidency, and the higher authority is the Constitution. So it seems to me that pastors should be able to say, if you're a faithful Christian and you're following Romans 13, the authority that's over you above all human authorities in this country is the Constitution of the United States. But if people are not subject to the Constitution in its original meaning, as I think Neil Gorsuch, our justice, was not during this Bostock decision, that is uh, it's a terrible decision. And uh, well, anyway, can pastors preach about being subject to the Constitution and respecting what it says? He resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. But when President Trump was inaugurated, Immediately there is the resistance, not just opposition, not just saying we're going to encourage people to vote for another party or another policy, but we're going to actively oppose everything he does so that the administration can't function. It seems to me that's resisting the authority that God has appointed. Sanctuary cities, that's opposing the enforcement of the law. Opposing building a border wall, which the border wall is to protect the country from people coming in illegally. Opposing a border wall is opposing the enforcement of the, of the, of the law. I, I just start going down this direction. Doesn't that seem to you to be resistance to the government? Not, not opposition, not reason opposition, not seeking to persuade people to vote another way, but actively opposing the enforcement of laws. Well, I think pastors can preach on that. Pastors should be able to preach about marriage and the sanctity of marriage. Well, that's some ideas. I want to follow some of those trends of thoughts through the next few questions. One of them dealing with the race issue. Obviously, in our country right now, after the George Floyd death of Mark Arbery and others, um, it's, it's the issue right now, it seems, uh, of the hour. 
You talked a lot about systemic racism, and that seems to be one of the terms that's thrown around a lot. What is systemic racism? Do you see its existence in society at all, and why or why not? There's There's a certain, let's start with you. Yeah, I, I think that the term is dishonest. This country is at least a racist country with many races in it in the history of the world. The, uh, there's an unprecedented suicide of a good country that I am witnessing right now. It, it's, it's incredible how decent the society America has become and the left's evil libeling of it as systemically racist. The reason, the primary reason that there are more blacks in prison is because more blacks commit violent crime. <laughs> That's either true or not true. The question is, is the line, the, the statement is, is not a question, is it a racist statement? They've made it the question because, as I've said all of my life, truth is not a left-wing value. Truth is a liberal value. Truth is a conservative value. It has never been a left-wing value. My field of study has been the left all of my life. I was at the Russian Institute. I read Pravda every day. Pravda was the Soviet communist newspaper. And Pravda in Russian means truth. Lenin, the father of Bolshevism, announced that the truth, the Pravda, is what the party says is true. That is the claim of the New York Times. The New York Times claims men menstruate, therefore men menstruate. That is the truth, because it is Pravda. Truth, so the question, why are there more blacks disproportionately in prison for violent crime, is that more blacks commit violent crime than whites do, even though they are a very much smaller segment of the population. This is not pro-black, it is not anti-black, it is not pro-white or anti-white, it is pro-truth. That's the reason, not because of America's systemic racism. But if you believe that lie, then you believe that Lincoln has to be has to have his statue removed. Lincoln was bad. Everybody was bad. The, this is a perfect example of the wisdom issue. Uh, allow me to offer you a thought in the hope that you will get my book, The Rational Bible. I assure you nobody writes Bible commentaries to get rich. So therefore, I have no hesitation in asking you to get it. But you will learn the following insight in my Genesis commentary. There is a great line about Noah. The world is evil and God saves Noah. What does it say? Noah was a righteous man. So that would have been a perfectly logical end to the sentence. Why did God save Noah? Because he was a righteous man. But the, it doesn't say that. It says he was a righteous man in his generations. When I studied uh, biblical uh, literature or biblical verses, 
I studied it in the way Jews have studied it for thousands of years, and I still read everything, including the New York Times, this way. We, are, we were taught, always ask, why did the author put it this way when they could have said it this way? It's phenomenal. And you read slower, but it is a phenomenal way to read. So in, in third grade, the question was asked, why does the Bible add in his generations? Why doesn't it just say he was righteous? And they had very interesting debate on the issue with the Talmud 2,000 years ago, but I came up with a new understanding, which is utterly relevant. This is the Bible's way of saying Noah was terrific in his generations, but in later generations, he wouldn't be so terrific. You must judge people in their generations. That's the, that's the biblical insight. Washington had slaves. Jefferson had slaves. That's irrelevant. Irrelevant. Everyone had slaves. Not every human being. Every society had slaves in human history. Black Africa, Arabs, Native Americans, everyone had slavery. It was universal. So the only wise question is not who had slavery, it's who abolished slavery. That's the only intelligent question. Thanks to Washington and thanks to Jefferson, the country that abolished slavery with Britain was, was formed. That's what matters, not what did they do personally. That's why I don't give a hoot about Trump's personal sins. It is irrelevant to me in assessing a leader. I want to know what they've done for the society. That's all that matters. God picked a prostitute to let the chosen people into Canaan. He could have picked an accountant. Why did he pick, why did he pick a prostitute? It's to teach a lot of good lessons. So that's uh, Give a little bit of pushback is that because it's so prevalent and a lot of people in the half Wayne age generation uh, are, are wanting to see if there's any kind of level of uh, I, I don't want to use the word compromise but any any kind of uh, understanding on the issue. So after generations of slavery, Jim Crow practices like redlining, are there any even lingering effects of racism that you would see in society today? Lingering effects as opposed to, is there any lingering racism? Of course there is. My father uh, was, a, was an Orthodox Jew. I'm a religious Jew. I don't call myself Orthodox, but I'm, I'm a practicing Jew. And uh, my father wrote his senior class thesis on anti-Semitism in America, City College of New York. And he raised my brother and me, his two sons, to believe we were the luckiest Jews in Jewish history to live in America. And he was right. I taught Jewish history at Brooklyn College. I've written books on it. And outside of Israel, the luckiest Jews in the history of the world are the Jews of America. And uh, the luckiest blacks in the world today are the blacks of America. And that's, that's just a fact. Uh, Keith Richburg is, is black. 
journalist for the Washington Post, been for many years, decades. He was stationed in Nairobi. He was the Africa Bureau Chief for Washington Post. He wrote a book, Out of America, which of course is not one of the five books people should read on the right that we're told to read to understand the black situation. Of course not, because he says he's the luckiest black in the world, that he didn't stay in it, that his, that his ancestors suffered the horrors of the transatlantic voyage and slavery. It's a, it's a given that they were horrible, those experiences and evil. But he said, but I'm lucky. I'm the descendant of these people, and I got to be American, and I didn't stay in Africa. That's his book. That's the Washington Post correspondent in Africa, out of America. He's very lucky. I'm very lucky that my relatives lived anti-Semitism in Europe. It was so anti-Semitic, they came to America. Had things been good, they'd have gone up in chimneys. Life is strange. So I'm the beneficiary of European anti-Semitism because I got to grow up as a Jew in America. Of course, there were lingering effects of racism, but the lingering effect of racism is, is not what the, the, uh, the death of the black family. The black family was stronger in terms of two parents raising a child. In the 1930s, it was stronger than the white family. So I don't understand. When there was Jim Crow, blacks thrived family-wise. When, when all of the legislation was passed against discrimination, the black, and of course I'm not attributing to that, discrimination is, is evil. But what happened was, the, what happened was the welfare state took away the manhood of a lot of black men and a lot of white men and a lot of Hispanic men. You don't have to marry a man and make a home, you can marry the state. I was at the Democratic National Convention about 20 years ago, 16 years ago, and you could still see it. There was an announcement. The only thing all Americans have in common is the government. That was their announcement. And they had, you could see it on the internet. Look it up, Julia, Democratic National Convention. A cartoon about Julia, from birth to death, no man is in the entire story of Julia's life. The government, it's a white woman, the government takes care of her. Okay, I'm gonna jump in, Dennis. I, I agree with so much of what you said, but I, I also, uh, I, I have to preface this by saying, I haven't thought long and hard enough be able to articulate exactly what I think about the racism question as it's, as it's come to the forefront in the last month. I have a chapter on racism in my Christian ethics book and I think it's wrong. It's, it's, it's evil. But you can give it for $25. <laughs> I'll take it. That includes tax. <laughs> I don't make a cent off of that phrase. Um, but I, I think we have to admit that people still have sinful hearts and there are still racists in our country. It's not acceptable in terms of societal norms 
or expectations, which I'm thankful for. But I think we cannot ignore the testimony of African-American friends whose experiences who have had, who are law-abiding people and have had bad experiences with police. I think that just is intolerable. And uh, there needs to be something done to correct it. Now, systemic, that word can mean so many things. And if it means in the society as a whole, there are some people who are racist and have racist attitudes and actions. Of course, I don't think government's ever going to eradicate that. That comes through the preaching of the truth of the Bible and change of people's hearts. But is everybody on the every police force racist? No, absolutely not. Are the laws stacked against one race or another? No, absolutely not. So the systemic thing just needs a definition. I'm just expressing uneasiness Well, let me, let me address that for a moment. Yeah, please do that. The, the, the existence of racists, even that, if you want, if we, and, and it is fair, this is a very interesting question. So let me speak as a member of a minority, I'm a Jew, where there's been a lot of anti-Semitism in all of history, including in America. It's one of the reasons that Jews were not allowed in when Hitler came to power, because whether Roosevelt was anti-Semitic or not, I have not. But this, I, I don't know, people yeah. don't know that you're Jewish when you're driving a car. But they do know if you're Jewish. Yes, you're correct. Although, but now, that's great that you raised that. You will all, you will love this. My grandfather came from Russia, Poland. He's a Jew from Russia, Poland, where there was a pervasive anti-Semitism. So whenever, it didn't happen often, but whenever it happened, I was driving with him, and I love my grandfather. And a guy would cut him off. He would yell, "Anti-Semit!" <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I was like eight, thinking, "How does my grandfather know the guy was an anti-Semit?" <laughs> he probably cut him off because he's a jerk. <laughs> How does he even know my grandfather's a Jew? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. There, there is, oh, I get, I've gotten calls for 35 years like this. Dennis, you don't know what it's like to be a black man. I said, that is entirely accurate. Every day I encounter racism. So, I ha it's like almost a routine. I would say with utter sincerity, every day, because I, I wanted to give them a chance to say, well, not every, okay, every week, every month, every day. Okay, so I'm just curious. Tell me about the anti-black or the racist incident you experienced today. Well, the day's not over. <laughs> Yesterday. Uh, I don't, I, it's hard to, hard to say. Anyway, last week, they came up with nothing. Or they would come up with a really rude clerk in a, in a, in a, in a store. Yeah. Like, we don't experience rude clerks, only blacks do. <laughs> but a black, understandably, might think, oh, that was because of racism. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you another example. Uh, riding home from synagogue one, one week with my family, I still had my Yamaha on. 
skull, Jewish skull cap. And uh, I don't, obviously, I don't usually wear it outside of the synagogue uh, or at home at times. And, uh, but I, it, I had it on in the car and some uh, white kids in, a, in an open car with, you know, a convertible looked at us and started just cursing us, cursing us. And I looked at my then wife and I, and I said to her, you know, amazing, that's the first experience of anti-Semitism mm. that I have had in America. But I am a fighter and I decided to speed up and follow those kids. <laughs> and sure, thank God I did. About five minutes later, I saw them do it to another car of Episcopalians. <laughs> it's very hard to know unless it's clear. I'll prove to you how little racism there is in America. This to me is as close to proof as you can get. 90% of the incidents of nooses and swastikas were in fact made by blacks to show how anti-black Americans are. Whether it was uh, Tawana Brawley, or the, the, uh, the, the Duke lacrosse team, or uh, Jussie Smollett, overwhelmingly they are hoaxes. Why in a racist society do you need to make up racial hoaxes? Did any Jew in Germany make up an anti-Semitic hoax? No because they didn't have to. It was pervasive. It is wildly overstated how racist Americans are, and America is. Wildly. And it is a calumny on, a, on essentially decent people. And it is created by the left, not by blacks. Blacks have bought into it because the, the blacks are to the left what workers were, were to communists. People to be used to gain power. They, the left doesn't give a damn about blacks. That's why there is, you don't know one name of the thousands of blacks who were killed in the inner city. You do know names of the 13 killed by police who were unarmed in, in the last uh, year. By the way, 25 unarmed whites were killed in the same year. So I do not accept. There are racists, America is not. So let's shift gears from one controversial topic to another, and that is on the LGBTQ plus agenda. This uh, past month, the Supreme Court came out with their decision on Bostock. Uh, a couple years ago, 2015, I think it was, a Obergefell decision came out. Walk us through those cases, the, the implications it's had on morality, and I think as a leader of an evangelical institution, the concerns we have for religious freedom in light of the Supreme Court cases. So maybe walk, walk us through, for those who may not be familiar with, with those. You want to start, Wayne? And I, read the, I read parts of the majority opinion by Justice Gorsuch this morning, and all of the dissent by Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Alito joined by Tom, Thomas. The issue was whether Title VII of U.S. law prohibits sexual orientation discrimination when it forbids discrimination based on race, color, sex, religion, or national origin. 
there are three cases combined together, but the one was a funeral home where they had a man working as a, 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 an assistant or a helper in a funeral home. And he decided he was going to identify as a woman, so he began to dress as a woman and uh, ask that people call him a woman. Call him he or she, call him she instead of he. Um, and he lost to the lower court level. It came to the Supreme Court, and Justice Gorsuch, there are four liberals on the court, and four conservatives, and Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice, is, he thought he was going to be very conservative, but he's going both ways on different decisions. But Justice Gorsuch's majority opinion, with the four liberals and Justice Roberts joined him, was that if you have a female employee who says she's sexually attracted to a man, you won't fire her. But if you have a male employee who says he's sexually attracted to a man, you will fire her. Therefore, you're discriminating against him on the basis of his sex. That's the way the reasoning goes. And Gorsuch, who was supposed to be an originalist, a textualist, original meaning justice, wrote the opinion saying that's discrimination based on sex, and therefore it's wrong. The response by Kavanaugh and the response by dissent by Alito, they're just devastating because they say in 1964, I believe, when this anti-discrimination law was passed, no one voting for it or responsible for the wording of the bill thought that discrimination based on sex included discrimination based on sexual orientation, whether you're homosexual or heterosexual, or gender identity, whether you think of yourself as a woman or a man, according to your biological sex. No one thought it meant that. And since 1962, which is um, 38, 58 years, there have been attempts to pass additional legislation prohibiting sexual orientation discrimination but the attempts assumed that it wasn't covered by the law already. And 30 lower court judges, Justice Alito said 30 lower court judges had come to the same conclusion, 30 out of 30. Now Gorsuch comes up with a new interpretation. Contrary to the meaning of discrimination based on sex, contrary to the meaning that phrase had when the law was passed, which is contrary to Gorsuch's own philosophy of judicial interpretation. I think it's a terrible decision. I think it's going to have immensely negative consequences in the United States. Um, we have, um, the church that I'm a member of, and that I, other churches I've been a member of before, attempting to follow the Bible saying only uh, the office of elder is only open to men. But if a biological woman applies now and says she identifies as a man, can we say she can't be an elder? But wait a minute. She says she's a man, so we have to say she's a man. That to me is requiring me to lie. And if someone says, well, what do you think about Bruce Jenner? And I say, well, I think he is still a man. Is that against the law? 
because I'm discriminating against him because he's a biological male who claims to be a female. And that'll affect teachers. Do they have to do they have to refer to students in the classroom with their preferred gender pronoun and keep them all straight? You know which girl wants to be called a him and which boy wants to be called a her? That discrimination based on sex. That's the government compelling me to tell a lie. Because Bruce Jenner is a male, biological male, has 27 trillion, not million, not billion, 27 trillion cells in his body that have XY chromosomes, not XX chromosomes. So he has 27 trillion cells in his body that are male cells, not female cells. And I don't care if a person like this, it makes no difference if a person claiming to be transgender has surgery to make himself appear outwardly other than to be someone of the opposite sex from what he is biologically, he's still a male. He's got male bone structure, he has male muscular structure, he has male Adam's apple, he has male wiring in his brain, tens of thousands of connections that are uniquely male connections, not female connections. And yet I have to treat him as a female and call him a female and call him a her. That's just denial of reality. And of course it's going to come up. Can a man, biological man, who says he's a female, use a woman's restroom or enter a woman's locker room? According to Gorsuch, if you say no, you're discriminating on the basis of sex. That is not what the law meant at all. So I think it, it is ominous in its implications for this, you know, the whole country. It's very troublesome. So it's, it's very interesting. I'm sure there could be people in the room, people who will be watching later, maybe they are school teachers. So just for absolute clarity's sake, if that day comes, or when that day comes in the very near future, what's your recommendation to them? It's going to be very hard. Um, because the government is, well, I hope, I would hope that believers in that position would say, I cannot be forced by the government to tell a lie and say that a biological male is a girl because I'm affirming something that's false. That gets us on another topic, and that is the erosion of truth and the prevalence of lying in our culture and the excusing of it. That's, maybe come back to that. That's going to be a crisis of conscience for many, 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 many Christians. I, I would hope there would be disobedience that would lead to court cases that would eventually overturn this nonsense. But, depends on what happens at the presidential election. Because <laughs> if Joe Biden is elected, he's going to appoint liberal judges, all four of whom voted the wrong way on this and he gets two or three more, then the Supreme Court is locked into a liberal position on this issue and many other issues. If President Trump is re-elected, I guarantee, I guarantee that Ruth Bader Ginsburg will not live forever. <laughs> <laughs> She's gonna try. She's trying. She's tough. But, uh, and Stephen Breyer is aging. So it's possible that President Trump could, not, could get to appoint another one or two or even three more justices and prevent the aberration that came in with Kavanaugh, um, with Gorsuch. 
Incidentally, Hugh Hewitt thinks that Justice Roberts didn't agree with it, but decided to vote with the majority. So according to the Supreme Court rules, he would be able to choose the person who wrote the opinion. And he had to choose Gorsuch to write the opinion, which would have been a lot worse if Sotomayor or Kagan or Breyer or uh, Ginsburg. Ginsburg had written it. But it's a dreadful mistake. Because I think people are going to have a bit of a crisis of conscience later. You impressed us all earlier, I think, when you just quoted Romans 13 to submit to our earthly authorities. Your earthly authority says, call that student now by a preferred pronoun other than the pronoun. Is this then the moment where uh, we quote Augustine, you know, and not just law is no law at all? You derive principles from the obedience to Christian ethics. You derive principles not just from a single verse, but from the whole teaching of Scripture on the doctrine. And the question of obedience to civil government is obey except when commanded to disobey a command of God. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down to the golden image because it's idolatry and they're cast in the fiery furnace. Um, the Egyptian midwives didn't, midwives didn't kill the Hebrew babies because it was murder, and God approved them for it. The Sanhedrin said, don't preach the gospel, but Jesus said, preach the gospel, and the disciples disobeyed. So there are many examples, there are more than that, many examples in scripture where God's people disobeyed the law of the civil government and they were approved in the narrative or in the interpretation of it later on. So we obey the government except when it commands us to sin. Then we have to obey God rather than men. You ask me questions all the time. The LGBT agenda is everywhere right now. I mean, you can't turn on a, a single TV show without seeing characters that are portraying uh, somebody who's trans or homosexual. Uh, what is your, uh, if you're looking out into the future, where does this go in terms of religious liberty? Before religious liberty, if I may, yeah. I, this is going to be the hardest part of the evening for me because I, it's so, it's so enormous a topic, and I'm good at putting things concisely. This one's a tough one, but I will try. But I'll give you an idea of how hard it is. My five-book commentary on the five books of Moses is not going in order. It went to Exodus, Genesis, Deuteronomy is next, then Numbers, and then Leviticus, uh, because, among other reasons, nobody ever heard of Leviticus. <laughs> <laughs> and whereas Costco did stock Genesis and Exodus, it's hard for me to imagine a large order for Leviticus <laughs> on the part of Costco. Most Americans, if you said, what is Leviticus, they would think it's running in the Preakness. <laughs> Leviticus at two to one. <laughs> so, uh, I will just tell you, I've already written on one verse in Leviticus, 23,000 words. The verse about homosexuality. So I have spent a good part of my life on this subject. First, I want you to know that I have uh, I have come to appreciate Barry Goldwater's worry about the original anti-discrimination law, which only was about race. I was a kid, and I was completely for the law because discrimination on the basis of race is, in my opinion, evil, not just wrong, evil. 
But Goldwater thought it was evil. He founded the NAACP. Throwing a same-sex pattern of life, uh, or affirming transgender identities, many other things. And if that happens, um, we'll trust the Lord to allow us to remain faithful to Him. We'll believe that He has a good purpose for us, even in hardship and suffering, and I do think that there will be intense persecution of the church in the last days before Jesus returns. So I, and I fear that the destructive, the narrative of America being an evil nation, when I think it's the greatest nation in history, possible exception of the United Kingdom, uh, but it has the United States has had more good influence for good on the history of the world than I think any other nation in history. And to have that, as Dennis said, committing suicide, that is um, turning inward on itself so we hate our country and think it's evil. And then patriotism becomes something unacceptable, which is this issue with the flag and the national anthem. It troubles me when I see people saying maybe we'll just won't we'll give up the national anthem before sporting events. I've had a tremendous joy and pride in my heart in a baseball game or a football game <clears throat> when the audience sings the national anthem because <clears throat> I love this country so much and it's a manifestation of thankfulness for the privilege of living in this country, being an American and being thankful for all the good the country does. And if we lose that, we erode the supportance of patriotism. Um, and eventually the nation becomes more and more fragmented and discouraged and fails to value the, the characteristics of freedom and uh, out of many one, e pluribus unum, which you talked about, Dennis. But I, I yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, trust in God. So that would be that's worrisome. And if the United States fails to, if it continues on the path that <coughs> the uh, Obama administration took us down, do that. And less and less funding for defense would become weaker and weaker until the military strength of the United States is eroded. Then China invades Taiwan and takes it over, and then more and more of the uh, Pacific area around China. North Korea invades South Korea, and the United States doesn't have the power to help. Uh, Russia expands into Eastern Europe takes over not just the Crimea, but all of Ukraine, and then other Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and, uh, and perhaps advances further into Eastern Europe. And the United States does nothing to help, because we can. And Cuba begins to expand, not just to Venezuela, but expand its communist influence to more and more countries in Latin America. The world becomes a very different place. That, to me, gives an indication that God is bringing judgment on the United States. And I just hope that doesn't happen. But it would be judgment on the world. 
Because that would be my fear. But, I don't think that's going to happen. I, uh, I said earlier this evening, the prophet, in the, in the Old Testament, the pattern is God doesn't bring judgment on the nation, on the nation of Israel, until the prophets, the priests, the king, and all the people, all four groups have turned against God. And that's not the case here in the United States. The, uh, the evangelical church and Bible-believing Christians are still a strong component of the United States. People praying for and seeking God for and working for the good of the nation still are a tremendously large force in the, in the country. And uh, there's still residual racism, but we've done maybe more than any country in history to overcome racism and stand against it. And it, it, it receives no affirmation from any responsible leader in either political party. So we can be thankful for all of that. Um, the United States still does more good for the world than any other nation. So I, and I see signs that indicate God may be preparing for revival. When I was, when I had to choose a seminary uh, in 1970, there were maybe six seminaries that were faithful to scripture that I could choose from in the United States. Today I count 17 that I could recommend. First of all, Phoenix Seminary, of course. Uh, but, Many others that have faculty members that believe the whole Bible, don't compromise on it, hold it and teach it as true. And I see hundreds of seminary graduates being trained to be pastors, counselors, missionaries. It seems to me this is the kind of thing. And then if I could have a map of the United States and throw a dart at it, wherever it landed, you and I could go to that city and I could find for you a Bible-believing church where a pastor is preaching Sunday after Sunday to a crowd of eager note-takers, uh, messages that are faithfully teaching scripture. And that's it's an amazing phenomenon. No matter where you go in the United States, you see that. I've been to many of those cities. So I, I think it's very possible that in times of deep evil gaining power in the country, these are the kind of times that God brings revival. And that's my hope. That's my expectation. It will take God's people praying and seeking to be faithful and living in obedience to Him. Uh, that's my hope. Many years ago, this is a response to the question of, is there any hope? When I was in my 20s, I, I went to Israel every year, and I, I lived with a mentor, a rabbi in Israel. I stayed at his apartment. And for whatever reason, I don't know why it came up, but we were at a gas station filling up his car. And he told me the story, said in the early, Venice in the early years of, of Israel, it was a very socialist state. And uh, the government ran everything including not everything but much of industry like telephone it was in the uh, ministry of communications so he said so dennis i went to the ministry of communications to get a phone for my home and i said to the clerk he said this to me in hebrew but 
it, the line happily works perfectly in English. So he said, I asked the clerk, how long will it take? When will I get the phone? He said, no, six months. So I said to the clerk, is there any hope I can get it sooner? And the clerk said to me, sir, there's always hope. There's no chance. <laughs> that is my depressing answer. <laughs> People ask, is there any hope? There's hope and there's a chance. The chance is if you fight, you have to fight. And you have to send everyone you know effective articles and videos and thoughts. You get defriended, they weren't your friend to begin with. What can I tell you? Yeah. It's, uh, Does the election of Donald Trump, the surprising election of Donald Trump, give you hope? It does mean well, let me tell you my reaction. I, I, and th therefore you have to put my pessimism, you know, up, on, on the side for a moment. I was certain he would not win. And I was, and I, it, I was hopeful that he would. I, I, I asked my friends, I kept saying, I think he's going to win. You did? Yes, because I didn't think God was going to bring judgment on the country. <laughs> Good for God. <laughs> the, um, so I gotta tell you, that night I told my boys, I know, because you have to take this in the spirit with that, with that, with that, with which I say it. But you know, I I was so happy. I have two sons. So happy the nights you were born. But not as happy as the night Trump won. <laughs> so, it, I, I, not only was I happy, I was jubilant. But I engaged in something I, I, I never before proudly engaged in. Schadenfreude. The German word meaning joy at others' misery. <laughs> I did not watch Fox News for one minute that night. I only watched CNN and MSNBC. Their misery was food for my soul. So a note of hope. A note of hope. So, but you got to fight. Let me end in a totally serious note. When I visited Normandy Beach about 25 years ago and saw, as far as the eye could see, all these crosses, and the average age was like 20, and I took a vow, I don't do that often, and I said, you know, all these young guys died for America and liberty, so I take a vow, I'm gonna live for America. And liberty. That's the value of it. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Dennis.